This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Howdy, guys. Welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland. And wow, do we have a rare and special treat for this episode because I'm talking to Andrew J. Clyde, the executive producer of the Bonanza Complete Series DVD box set and the Gunsmoke Complete Series box set. Now, you know from watching Serial at Midnight videos, from listening to my podcast, what a huge fan I am of Westerns. You know what a huge fan I am of classic television. You also know that these two box sets, Bonanza and Gunsmoke, are two of the largest physical media releases in the history of the format. Uh, Both of them are over 100 discs. We're going to find out. This is what's so cool about this conversation is we're going to find out how this happens. In the case of Bonanza, which I'm going to talk a lot about because Bonanza is the thing that opened the door for this conversation. This complete series release is brand new. And uh, that's what opened the door. That's how I'm able to talk about this with Mr. Clyde. How, how long did it take? Well, 15 years to make this thing a reality. They started working on this on season one about 15 years ago. Now, all these years later, we finally have a complete series box set. And people say, why no Blu-ray? Well, we're going to find out why no Blu-ray and if there's any Blu-ray on the horizon. We're also going to explore the themes of Westerns, why they're... Uh, vessels for human themes, for the themes that really resonate throughout all sorts of media, but how it's a uniquely American format that lends itself to all kinds of different storytelling devices and, uh, and, and, and methods and approaches. This is really one of the most candid, informative, and uh, just I, we don't have access to this stuff most of the time. The fact that Mr. Clyde is here talking about this release I don't think there's any episode of Serial at Midnight, any interview that I've done that gives us so much information behind the scenes of a physical media release. Uh, We go from like the conception to the reality to the challenges. How is it restored? How are the, the extras licensed or commissioned or recorded? Really, there's no stone left unturned here. And I'm so grateful to Andrew J. Clyde for coming to Serial at Midnight and talking to me about this stuff. Uh, before we go further, I do want to say that if you're interested in picking up Bonanza, the complete series, or hey, or Gunsmoke, the complete series, I highly recommend both of them. They are both archives for those shows, uh, not just in terms of episodes on disc, but also special features. And really, the, the record of those series lives in these box sets. I'm going to put links in the description of this episode where you can order both of those uh, box sets that does support Serial at Midnight. If you use those links, I get a small commission from those sales. And hey, you're one, supporting physical media. Two, you're supporting the Western genre. And three, you're supporting somebody who appeared on Serial at Midnight and told it like it was. So listen, there's so much to talk about here. Without further ado, Mr. Andrew J. Clyde. Well, first, Heath, I want to thank you for inviting me to come and talk to you. I've, I've been a big admirer and a fan of yours for a long time. And I, I must say to your audience that nobody does what you do better. Your questions are always interesting, insightful, and it's because you do your research. You spend a long time researching. And, and we who are fortunate to, uh, to watch you, and in my case, even more fortunate to have a discussion with you, really appreciate what we're seeing now, which is the fruits of your labors. And, and I just don't have enough adjectives to, to really thank you for what you're doing um, because you're a very powerful voice in, for the most part, a, a wilderness in this world where streaming is predominant. 
you're you're carrying the torch and you're leading the way and and I, I really appreciate that. And not only when you do reviews yourself, but but also when you talk to so-called knowledgeable people like myself, I guess. I know you talked to my buddy Bob Fermanac and, and Jack Dietzen and talked about their wonderful work restoring the Abbott and Costello television series and and Jack and the Beanstalk and to be able to sit down with those guys and get the behind the scenes real deal information is is just great and and I and I'm proud to be included in that small circle of people that you know how thrilling it is for me to be able to talk to you about this? This is such an honor for me. So thank you so much. I mean, everything that you just said means so much to me. One of the great things about Bonanza, in addition to being one of the longest running series of its kind, of its of its type, first of all, it spanned the entirety of the 1960s. So I think about all the social changes that happened during the 1960s. Bonanza was there. Uh, Gunsmoke was there too, but Bonanza had a little bit different approach to a lot of those things. It also had a ton of guest stars. Uh, it's a really special show. Would you tell me just a little bit about your take on Bonanza? I'm assuming you were a fan growing up with the show as well, right? That's true. And, and I think like many of your viewers, I watched Bonanza and, and other shows, which are near and dear to my heart, at a young, impressionable age. Like, like many of us, I guess I spent too much time in front, of, in front of the television set. And I just had a knack for reading and paying attention to the credits. And there was something about Bonanza that resonated with me as it resonated with the general public. Remember, it started in 1959. So it was the tail end of the 1950s and all that that implies, all throughout the tumultuous 1960s and all that that implies, and the beginning of the 1970s. So it was really more than the 1960s. And in the late 50s, you had an emphasis on history and an attempt to dramatize stories that were seeped in history, actual events, and name guest stars, because nobody knew who Lauren Green, Pernell Roberts, Sam Blocker, and Michael Landon were, or Victor Senyung. Victor Senyung, arguably, was possibly the most well-known, because he was Charlie Chan's number two son for, for many years in Charlie Chan films. Pernell Roberts had come to Hollywood based on his success on, on Broadway. He was a recipient of the Best Actor Award off-Broadway Productions in 1957, I believe. Lauren Green, the voice of Canada for that, the voice of Doom, because he reported the somber news during World War II. And he always wanted to be an actor and, and had an opportunity when his friend Fletcher Markle produced Studio One, the great live drama series, one of the great live drama series along with Playhouse 90 at the time. And so he took over for um, Victor Jory, who, who missed a performance because he had a cold or something. So, so uh, that jump-started Lauren's career as an actor. And then not too many years later, Fletcher Markle, as producer and narrator of Telescope, was able, well, enabled us to have one of the great special features on the bonus disc. So the day in the life of Lauren Green, narrated by Fletcher Markle. Fletcher Markle visits with his old friend Lauren Green on the Bonanza set. Um, Michael Landon was in I Was a Teenage Werewolf, despite the 
Working Title was actually probably one of the best of its time. And, and then last, but certainly not least, Dan Block. Dan Blocker was just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And I've never, never met anyone in my travels who had ever said a negative thing about him. And, and you can say negative things about just about everyone if you try hard enough <laughs> or, or don't try hard enough. But not Dan, not Dan. Just extraordinary. And, and he is the only actor for whom David Dortwork wrote the pilot episode with him in mind. There's no one else who could play Boss Cartwright. Um, for, for, and this is sort of a fun trivia thing, I guess I mentioned. Um, his first choice for Ben Cartwright was Lee J. Cobb. And he met with Lee J. Cobb's agent who said, uh, Lee J. Cobb does not do television. Well, yeah, sure. But a couple of years later, he changed his mind when gave him the sun and the moon and the stars to star in Virginia. So so the, the casting was significant because for the most part, nobody heard of these guys. But there was an effort to make up for that by bringing in big name guest stars, people who are very well known features, people like Yvonne DiCarlo, who's a pilot, Jack Carson, Jack Warden, Henry Hull, Ida Lupino, Howard Duff, Jane Greer, being at the film noir. Just very interesting people who didn't usually do television, but they were paid more money than the Bonanza actors were and, and helped, I guess, to, to bring in an audience initially. And, and then the show became successful as the years went on and the most popular show in the country, indeed, in the world. And so it was very prestigious to be offered a guest starring part. And people who were up and coming, but not well known yet, had early roles on Bonanza. People like um, Susan Oliver and Jack Lord, James Coburn, DeForest Kelly, actually all of the cast of Star Trek, except William Chapman. There's a Gene L. Kuhn L. Uh, connection oh, sure, that sure, we should sure. mention too. Yeah, um, Gene L. Kuhn, who created so many important components of Star Trek for the original series and, and was Star Trek's producer for, for the first season, at least he wrote or co-wrote a couple of very early episodes of Bonanza. And you're not going to find a better writer than Gene L. Kuhn. So if you're a fan of Gene L. Kuhn's work, you would certainly want to check out what he did for Bonanza. Um, so, so it's a long list of very talented people in front of, as well as behind the camera. And Bonanza was the first major television production filmed at Paramount Studios. Filmed in color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that also was unprecedented. Bonanza is often described as television's first color western. That's not true. It was television's first color our series with continuing characters. You had uh, spectaculars, sports shows, game shows filmed in color before that, but no regular scheduled hour-long series. It was a half-hour show called Northwest Passage based on the feature film, which ostensibly was a Western that preceded Bonanza by, by one season. I, I think that it's 
important for viewers to recognize that the Western format allows a great deal of latitude and allow, it allows storytelling in a way that contemporary shows did not because they're too, too controversial. So you could couch the controversy in, in history. So you had episodes of Bonanza that dealt with topics like mercy killing and bigotry and prejudice and advancement of civil rights, preservation of the environment, things that could tell because they were historical and easily, more easily told than they were contemporary. I would love to hear from you what goes into a set like this? We're going to cover the show. I want to talk about all aspects of Bonanza. But did you know when you set out to bring these to reality that you were aiming for something that was uncommon, an uncommon goal? You know, I think that, that Bonanza is pretty unique and, and distinctive and special in the annals of uh, popular culture generally and television history specifically. Um, and I have had an interest in Bonanza for, for a long time, and we could go into that a little bit if, if you wish. But yes. um, Bonanza has been on the radar of, of anyone who, who admires classic television. And CBS, Home Entertainment, inherited the distribution rights to Bonanza in 2008. Prior to that, it had been distributed by um, Republic Entertainment, and Republic used to be National Telefilm Associates, which was the distribution arm that was created in the early 1970s when the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, issued an edict that said, thou shall not distribute programs that thou owns. So CBS could no longer distribute shows like Terry Mason, um, and ABC couldn't distribute its own shows, and NBC could no longer distribute shows that it shows that it owned. So, out of CBS was created Viacom, ABC, World Vision, and NBC National Television Associates, or NTA, which a few years later, as I mentioned, changed its name to Republic Entertainment to take advantage of the great goodwill that came from the old Republic production company. And ironically, all of those are owned by the same entity because of the concept of mergers and, and acquisitions. So um, you had Republic Entertainment put out episodes of Bonanza on VHS and then later on DVD, something called The Best of Bonanza. And Lionsgate had a, a sub-license for, for a short time, didn't really do anything with it. And then the license reverted back to um, the successor company of Republic Entertainment, which was CBS Panel. So I remember having a telephone conversation, no, an in-person conversation with, a, with an attorney on the Paramount lot telling me that I had been recommended to um, produce, executive produce, the release of Bonanza, the official first season, to coincide with the uh, 40th anniversary of the show's debut, as, as you know. Um, marketing distribution people, they're very keen on tying into anniversaries. So I, I remember she said to me, you know, this is Paramount, this is really serious stuff. So you have to know your stuff and have to really produce very top quality material. So I said, yes, I know, thank you. And 
So I, I, I met a wonderful person named Angelo Dante not too long after that, who, without whom there would be no CBS home entertainment uh, in terms of special features, um, because he's just the guy who knows how to find things. And we worked very well together and he was able to find some wonderful bonus material that I wouldn't have found otherwise. So, so that started my association. Um, and I had the ear of Ken Ross, who for many years was the head of CBS Home Entertainment. And he was my, my champion. Uh, he believed in what I wanted to do. And he said yes to most of my proposals vis-a-vis -vis supplemental uh, special features, bonus features. And, and I remember there was an issue of, um, of billing early on. I, I was given a consulting fee and was told that my title would be either, I forget now, was it consultant or, or might even have been special thanks, which I was not very impressed with. You know, I have a law degree and I have draft contracts, I've drafted contracts, and I've been doing this stuff by then a fairly long time because I had done consulting work prior for production companies uh, like the CBC um, and uh, ABC when put out specials for television, which had uh, clips of vintage television programs. So, so I had some experience. And, and there's a wonderful person by the name of Paul Brownstein, whom your viewers should be familiar with, who oversaw the release of vintage television programs at the dawn of the DVD era of early 2000s. And he was given the title executive producer. So I, I wrote an email to Ken Ross, respectfully asking if I could get his title. And um, and Ken replied using some very colorful language. Uh, yes, <laughs> let Clyde have the title. So it was funny to see how he just steamrolled everyone below him. He said, "No, we can't do that. We haven't done that." So so Ken was my champion, and I worked very closely with him and, and other very talented people in terms of um, picking out artwork. Uh, they had some generic pictures of the cast, and you know you can't really blame these people because they didn't know. I said, I don't think it's a good idea to have a, a season six, season five era photo accompany the first season. I think probably a good idea to have publicity photos taken when the show is in production its first year. So little things like that. I remember I wanted to include the writer and director credits in addition to brief plot summaries. Oh, we can't do that. We haven't done that before. We don't have well, I think we should do it. And again, Ken said, if Pi wants to do it, put it in. And even if we had to reduce the font size so you couldn't see without a microscope. But all of the Paramount titles at that time of CBS had a disclaimer on the packaging. Uh, episodes, some episodes may be edited from their original broadcast. You can understand why. It's a general all-purpose disclaimer to keep them out of hot water. You and I had an interesting conversation before we started taping that covered that sort of disclaimer mm -hmm. kind of thing. We live in a litigious society and and I was not aware, but I was made aware. People sue Paramount, they sue CBS, they sue other production company studios for all sorts of silly reasons. So conceivably, an irate consumer would say, hey, this episode contains an edit. I remember that Fonzie walked through Arnold's and sat down and in the episode on the DVD, the scene starts with Fonzie already sitting down in the booth. You know, but I said, I can appreciate the need for the disclaimer, but in the case of these Bonanza episodes, if they're unedited, 
why do we have that disclaimer there? Well, we've always done that. We have to cover ourselves. So again, I went over the heads of the very nice people that I would work with closely. And I said to Ken, pretty much what I just said to you. And Ken said, well, let's send all the episodes to Clyde, let him screen them and let him confirm that they're unuttered. So I immediately thought, uh-oh, what did I get myself into? So I, <laughs> yeah. I got myself, in the case of the first season, 32 episodes of 32 DVDs, and, and I watched them. And indeed, they were all uncut and complete. And so for the first Hold time... On. So are you going from memory, or do you have some sort of a reference that you're comparing them to so you know for sure, since we're talking about legal possibilities? Well, that's an excellent question, and I happen to know that a complete... Bonanza episode, typical of the era, we're talking about 1959, uh, would be approximately 50 minutes in running time. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm watching something that's 46 minutes, 47 minutes, 48 minutes, and that was the running time after syndicators cut portions to make room for more commercials, then I knew that that was an uncut episode. Um, there's also something called the CBS syndication bible which is somewhat accessible if you know how to find it and that is a wonderful guide that tells you the various versions of all of the titles of shows of the cbs library and in many cases not all the titles are available in syndication versions and in network and bonanza doesn't have a syndication version so that was encouraging for the most part, these episodes were uncut from the get-go if you're working from film, which was what we were doing prior to the release of the first season. Most of the time, the episodes presented to me were complete and uncut, again, because we were working from the original 35-millimeter film. And, and that was sort of a fight. I had to keep doing that at more than one interval because, unfortunately... The uh, sales for Bonanza, the official first season, were not as high as they hoped they would be. So I, I guess I'll tell that now. This is as good as time as I'd love to know. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about so, that. So, so uh, when we, when plans were presented to me to release season two, two decisions were, were made above my pay grade. One, that we wouldn't release the season divided in half simultaneously, we would do it uh, consecutively. So season two, volume one, in the first quarter of the year 2010, and season two, volume two, I think in the fourth quarter, maybe even as late as early 2011. Um, and, and, and people also have asked, well, why do you divide the seasons in half? And, and I guess I could mention that very quickly, and, and again, it's just economics and, and marketing strategy to have a complete series set again from that period in time where episodes were 32, 34, 36 shows a season that takes up a lot of DVDs and you have to charge accordingly. And I can't tell you exactly why they charge what they charge, but they figured out that people are just not going to pay $50, $60 for a complete season set, but they right. will pay half that for half the season. And people gripe and complain, justifiably, it's too much money, um, but they have the opportunity to not buy it all at once because it's 
it's divided. So, so there was that decision that was made way before I was involved, and that's standard for, for television programs of, of that vintage, certainly. Uh, and then the second decision that was made based upon the less than stellar sales for season one to not go back to original 35 millimeter film elements, the camera negatives in almost all cases. Um, sometimes they went back to the interpositive, which is one step away, the so-called fine grain from what's in a camera negative. And, and that's pretty much because they couldn't find the original element. But most of the time, like all but one episode they use the original 35 millimeter negatives that ran through the camera so that's what they did for season one season one didn't sell as well as they liked so they wanted to cut costs and so with season two i was told that they were going back to the analog masters that were created in 1998 1999 and and they were state-of-the-art at the time i remember entertainment issued a press release talking about the process of taking out dust and scratches with incredible results. And so they created, um, I think at that time, it probably would have been uh, three-quarter inch. And then a little later, they were converted to uh, beta SP and then still later digi-beta. So, so they looked pretty good. And, and that's what was syndicated um, at the dawn of the, of the tape era before that people would see vintage television programs on 16 millimeter film and 16 millimeter is not as good quality as everyone knows it's 35 millimeter. So the episodes looked a little washed out, but that was eliminated with the tape revolution, which came about in the 1990s. So to save money, they were going to use these 1998, 1999 masters and tweak them. And I wasn't too happy about that, but there was nothing I could do about it. Um, so, that's how season two was released. And for the most part, people didn't say anything. I think rare exceptions, one or two or three viewers, to my knowledge, said, hey, you know, some of the episodes don't look quite as sharp as they did the first season. I guess they weren't stored as, as properly, but it just went over the heads of, of, of many of your average consumers. Um, I, I would imagine that the people who watch you are, are more discerning and, and would have noticed the difference. Yeah. So fast forward now to the time to release season three and, and the same edict is, is presented to me. And I decided to write one of my famous memos to Ken Ross directly to go over everybody's head. And I just basically said, you know, we're, we're taking all this time and trouble to release this classic series and present it on DVD I think that we should try to spend more money if you could find it to go back to what we did for season one and do it not so much or not only for the physical media release, but to make the product more saleable, more marketable overseas. And and like um, many television programs, uh, Bonanza arguably is is, if not more popular, certainly as popular in other countries as it is in the United States. And, and Bonanza, more than any other show, is an international success. It was the single most successful television series in the world throughout the 1960s by virtue of the number of countries in which it was shown. So, so that argument resonated, and Ken agreed. 
and ordered that the preparation of the season two episodes, I'm sorry, the season three episodes be ceased and they weren't going to go back and tweak the 80, not, well, 98, 99 episodes. Um, I'm sorry, 99, 98 masters and they were going to go back to the original film. So that's started with season three in terms of um, in terms of production and, and getting the product out. Sales were okay, but they were never fantastic. They were never gangbusters. So season three came out, season four, season five, season six, and all the while I worked with Angelo very closely to try to come up with great special features. Um, and, and the marching orders were always the same. Put as much as you can in there, but for as little money. And, and so that became difficult, but I, I sort of perfected the formula the standard of, of inviting alumni to do audio commentary. And, and that proved to be very popular to have people who worked on the show sit down and, and talk about the show and their recollections. And unfortunately, the participants, the, the principals were, were no longer around by that time they had all passed away, the original Cartwrights. But at least we had the guest stars and we had the writers and we had directors. And, and that was fantastic to be able to hear from behind the scenes people that you wouldn't otherwise be able to hear. And I always worked very hard to find other sources. Um, Bill Whitney, for example, one of the great, great underrated directors of all time, I think the action master, his official biographer, my, my buddy Francis Nevins called him. He directed episodes of Bonanza starting with the second season. And I would have loved to have him do an audio commentary. He directed fantastic serials for Republic in the 1930s, like the 40s. Um, directed many episodes of the Roy Rogers show. Just, just a fantastic, fantastic director. And Quentin Tarantino has praised him a lot. And unfortunately, he, um, he had passed away by the time I was doing what I was doing. But he did do an interview for uh, a Western film festival in 1978, I believe, that was videotaped. And, and uh, my buddy, Mike Nevins, Francis Mike Nevins videotaped. And so he, he loaned me the footage, which was on VHS, and we had it cleaned up a bit and transferred. And we were able to, to show that because he talked about episodes of Bonanza that he directed. So whenever possible, I, I tried to do that, to get things from, from unlikely and unlikely sources. So, uh, going forward from a technical perspective, it was always um, a, a sort of a, a wing and a prayer to get the go-ahead to release the next season of Bonanza. Wasn't there a gap, or am I am I remembering that there was? Oh, a you're absolutely right. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And the gap was due to, I think, a combination of um, the sales just not, not being impressive, right? Um, Economics, uh, in terms of the probably the prolifer proliferation of streaming, um, and and people buying DVDs in even less quantity, and the, the contractual financial arrangement between NBC and CBS Paramount. Because remember, I said earlier, um, it was CBS Paramount that was the successor distributor because NBC was prohibited from distributing its own shows, but it did take a big, big chunk of any money that 
was generated as a result of the distribution, result of the sales. And it was a big chunk and it was burdensome and it was onerous. And on more than one occasion, if I recall correctly, I said, well, why can't you just go back and try to renegotiate? I happen to be a lawyer. I have a law degree. I know that pretty much everything is negotiable and renegotiable, but was usually told, no, <laughs> we can't do that. And thanks for your suggestion, but please stick in your lane and oversee the, yeah. the acquisition and, and uh, use of the special features and draft the contracts for same. Um, but I guess what I said resonated at some level or coincidentally uh, after a gap, as you say, it was at least a year, maybe more than that, uh, I was told, uh, thanks to a newly negotiated arrangement, we can go ahead and finish the rest of Bonanza, because that was always Ken Ross's goal to do all of the episodes. And, and I remember um, pitching to him the idea to use a 1963, <clears throat> 1963 documentary produced by the CBC, uh, basically a day in the life of Lauren Green, which had the telescope. And, the telescope yeah, exactly, exactly right. And, and the, said as he always would say how much <laughs> so i told him and he said i you know i really don't think we can afford to spend that now let's save it for the very end he said okay that sounds good for me so so starting with season nine um we hit the ground running and we had this new arrangement with nbc that allowed us to do that um we went back again to the original camera negatives oh and and there was a point during that fallow time when it was suggested to no it was told to me, hey, good news, Andy, we're going to go back to Bonanza and we'll be releasing the next season. But times being what they are, we're going to go back to those analog masters from 1989, 1990. 1998. And I said, you know, I guess that was a pretty gutsy thing to do because they certainly could have gone ahead and done it without me. But they didn't. They just did nothing and until the tide changed and they were able to, to do it mm -hmm. the right way. We're now up to COVID times. It's about 2020. And again, uh, there's a pause. And that's mostly because of a change in regime and many people are let go it, it's an industry-wide thing that you're aware yeah. of sure. so that didn't bode well um i remember scrambling to get the final seasons of gunsmoke released on dvd and and ken and ross had, had indicated that he wanted to have a complete series box set a massive complete series box set as, as you know and um helped to choose the cover artwork for that and, and the previous individual seasons which were also released and um, and about the text and and work with um a fellow by the name of ben costello wonderful guy who, who sadly is no longer with us passed away very very prematurely and he and becky burgoyne um wrote books on gunsmoke he, he wrote a wonderful history of gunsmoke and becky wrote a biography of amanda blake Ladies Kitty. So I tapped them to create um, new little featurettes to talk about the highlights of a particular season. And that was well received, and I was able to also include 
photo galleries, a lot of things that I did for Bonanza. And um, Gunsmoke was released, and it was very successful as a complete series. But Bonanza was put on hold because of this change in leadership. So because Gunsmoke sold so very well as a complete series box set, so-called new regime that took over after many people were fired, made the decision to release Bonanza as a complete series box set. Why? Because the new decision maker told me that representatives from it was Walmart came to him and said, Gunsmoke is selling very well for us. Yeah. Can, can you give us another Gunsmoke? Well, we don't have another Gunsmoke, but I'll give you Bonanza. Okay, great. So that dead shoot is the only reason why we were able to get Bonanza. Really? Gunsmoke's that is incredible. Incredible. So you've just described about 15 years worth of work. Uh, this this was about 15 years in the making, starting at the beginning with season one, part one. Season, you know, uh, how does it feel to have done that work? This product is out. It's beautiful. It's the single largest archive of Bonanza that exists. Uh, and people say, why no Blu-ray? How does that feel? Well, it's it's a question that I expect because common question but my my basic answer my honest answer is it's it's a matter of economics as it's explained to me as as you know as well as i do better than me, if you look at sales numbers dvds outsell blu-rays period full stop end of discussion so if you have a decision maker a bean counter if you will who's trying to decide whether to release a product in a DVD format or a Blu-ray format, he or she is going to opt for the DVD because they're going to make more money because more people are buying DVDs and Blu-rays. Now, why is that? Again, you know that as well as I probably sure better, but the sort of short general answer, as I understand it, is DVD came like gangbusters in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, and after a few years, the Blu-ray format won something of a, of a format war and, and emerged as the desired successor, if you will, to DVD, much as DVD succeeded videotape, uh, home video cassettes. And so people were starting, just starting, to acquire Blu-ray players and um Blu-ray product, which was not released by the studios in abundance. They released far more DVDs and Blu-rays initially. Uh, and then Netflix came with their remarkable revolutionary streaming concept, replacing the concept of renting DVDs and then returning them. Now, now you could stream and, and you know what happened with that, of course. And so consumers not so much the enthusiasts, the aficionados that we are, are conversing with or conversing at, um, they increasingly abandon DVDs as a source for, for viewer viewership, for, for their viewing habits, and started streaming. So Blu-ray, I think, didn't really get a chance to catch on. And so it was only something reserved for a, a finite number of, of enthusiasts. So, so that sort of tradition, I guess, has continued today 
and I guess that's why there are, are less sales of Blu-ray because there, there are still viewers who have their DVD players and DVDs from, from years ago and I just continue that and don't see a need to upgrade. Yeah. But well, mine also high definition 4K. So I think it's just a matter of economics. And mm -hmm. also um, track records. If, again, I could talk best about CBS Paramount because I've, I've worked there most. Um, I Love Lucy, classic television program. No one questioned its ability to, to bring in the sales numbers. And in fact, you could repackage I Love Lucy any number of ways mm -hmm. and it would still sell. Best of episodes that emphasize particular characters, wonderful illustrations on box covers instead of photographs, and it would sell well. So the decision was made to release them on Blu-ray. Didn't sell well. Same thing with The Honeymooners, the classic, so-called classic 39, sold very well on DVD, but Blu-ray, not so much. Um, the exception, of course, is Star Trek. Star Trek, the original series, and Star Trek, the, the subsequent incarnations, they're, they're sort of a unique entity on, onto their own. But um, because CBS has observed that their Blu-ray incarnations of classic programs, for the most part, haven't sold well, and they're not going to take the additional step, spending more money to, to release them in the Blu-ray format. The truth is that TV on Blu-ray does not sell very well. It is a very small niche niche of the audience that will support that. They want complete series box sets, and they want it for pennies on the dollar. And that's not how you get stuff. That's not how you pave the way to having good things. Uh, you might be more uh, suited to speak to this than I am, but you know I, I've heard for years that Star Trek The Next Generation on Blu-ray was a huge financial loss for Paramount for, for that for the studio because they spent all this money to restore the original 35 millimeter elements and had to redo all the special effects because those special effects were finished in 480p. They're finished in standard definition. So they had to redo everything and they spent tons of money and then they released them, I believe they released them individually as seasons, and it took I've heard upwards of 10 years to get that investment back. I don't, do you have any insider? Do you know anything about that? I, I have no reason to disagree with anything you've said because it sounds right. But as far as any additional information, no, I don't have anything yeah. to add. And, and I, I know that it was a, a disappointment, um, especially <laughs> because they, they spent, to say the least, they spent yeah. certainly a lot of money yeah. remastering and restoring the original 79 episodes that comprise the original series that was broadcast on NBC from 1966 to 1969, and in a somewhat controversial move, they decided to create new special effects. Yeah. And these would be special effects that would have been used had they had a sufficient budget in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. and, and then gave viewers the opportunity to watch the show with the enhanced special features or as it was originally broadcast, which I think is the best way to present it. Yeah, I do too. So, so because that was successful, I guess they figured they could have similar success with the next generation, but it was not the case. I think the fans want to they want to act as if they are as if there's some grand conspiracy 
it all comes back to finances. DVD is what DVD sales are what paved the way for potential Blu-ray. Blu-ray sales are what paved the way for for potential 4K. If you're not buying the Blu-ray, you can't. I'm sorry. If you're not buying the DVD, you can't expect a Blu-ray because you have to support each step along the way. It's not rocket science. It is as simple as you support this, then maybe we can get this. And there's so many things that have to fall in line there too, right? You got to have the elements in place. You've got to have those high definition scans that have been done all along the way. So um, we have a responsibility. And I say we as the fan community who love film, who love preservation work, we have a responsibility to support the things that we're interested in. Because I always say we vote with our wallets. Every dollar that we spend and every dollar that we don't spend uh, is voting for what we're going to get down the road. I agree um, 100%. And I think that fans have to be a little more understanding and appreciative and glass half full versus glass, glass half empty kind of attitude. And a good quality... DVD release is certainly better than than no disc release. Yeah, and and I cannot predict the future, and I cannot say with virtual certainty that there'll be no episodes of Bonanza released in high definition in, in Blu-ray, and and same with Gunsmoke. Uh, again, touching on what we mentioned earlier, the great popularity of very many American programs overseas, Germany in particular. Is, is a wonderful country in terms of an appreciation for American popular culture generally and Western specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, same with Japan. And so it's certainly conceivable that the uh, entities that have licenses to distribute in those territories would come to CBS and say, can we release maybe a best of collection in Blu-ray. And, and the material is there now because all of the episodes of Bonanza and Gunsmoke, for that matter, have been digitally remastered. And so they exist in a high-definition format, which can be adapted for Blu-ray release without too much technical difficulty. Um, there, the, <clears throat> I think, are some subtle differences between episodes that were restored and remastered in 2008, 2009, and the most recent ones in 2023. I talked about season two being, in my opinion, and <laughs> the opinion of many others, substandard in, in terms of its DVD release back in 2010, 2011. And so at the tail end of discussions, and there were a lot of discussions regarding the release of the series, in a complete set, I said, can we also restore and remaster season two? Because I think it would be helpful to be able to say the complete series restored and remastered. And technically we can't say that if you have season two in its current state. Right. So I was told eventually, yes, but it was a long road to hope. And and, and this is particularly gratifying, Heath, and I, and I wanted to share it with you and, and your viewers because I'm sure they will appreciate it. I think I'll have to step back just a bit and, and talk about uh, a pause that occurred when we were discussing the uh, mechanics of doing the complete series box set 
and uh, Ken Ross's successor, a wonderful person by the name of Matt Arcelich, uh, said, I want to have a bonus disc of all of the extras, bonus features that you could find. I said, that's fantastic. And, and he gave me a, a workable budget to make it a reality. So we all owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. And he also, picking a page from his predecessor's playbook, said, to save money, we're going to have to compromise on the remaining seasons, those being seasons 12, 13, and 14. He said, I want to release those three seasons individually and, of course, incorporate them into the complete, complete series box set, but we don't have the money to go back to the original film elements and restore them. And this, of course, was sad, but I was happy at least that it looked like we would get the complete series out and get that bonus disc. So I protested a little bit, but to no avail. So... I remember we had a recording session. I was able to get Tim Matheson to cooperate, and I cannot say enough great things about Tim Matheson. Just a fantastic, versatile actor, director, enjoying great, deserve, much deserved success in Virgin River now. And he couldn't have been more cooperative. He went into the recording studio more than once and recorded audio commentaries for several shows. And uh, I'll, I'll tell a tale out of school, and I would hope no one repeats this, but the uh, Bonanza trailer scenes from next week all featured audio, although in some cases on-camera, intros by various cast members, initially the four Cartwrights who, who all alternated. And in the last season... There were trailers that were created that featured recordings by Lorne Green and Michael Lang. And those trailers were nowhere to be found. However, I was able to locate uh, a small number of audio because people in 1972 recorded on audio cassette. So once I had the audio and I worked with a, a wonderful editor by the name of... Uh, Ginger Cook, we were able to recreate the trailers. However, I asked Tim Matheson if he would record new audio. In essence, this is Tim Matheson. Here are some scenes from our next Bonanza. And he said, sure. So we did that. But between you and me and the lamppost, I don't think he ever did any in 1972. So, My lips but, are sealed. I won't, yeah. I won't breathe a word of it. Yeah, so, so Tim was just a great guy, and um, I felt badly because when he went to the recording facility in Van Nuys, Van Nuys he was looking at a screen of, of these 1989-1990. I don't know why I have a head block, a block head when it comes to those dates. But is it 90s or is it 80s? The analog masters were created in 1988-1989 to coincide with the release of Bonanza, The Lost Episodes. And there were no lost episodes. It was a clever marketing ploy by people at Republic Entertainment. I remember a, a, a 
great guy by the name of Chuck Larson, who had been newly hired and going off on a tangent, but I think it's interesting and, and yeah, take us. Relevant. He he was newly hired at Republic Entertainment, and his job was to exploit Republic shows for syndication shows like uh, Car Fifty Four, Where Are You, Get Smart, The High Chaparral, and, and Jewel in the Crown, Bonanza. So. He was told that there are 121 episodes of Bonanza available for syndication. It had been up until that point from 1973 to 1988. And he said, well, what about the others? Well, what else? The others. Well, there are no others. Well, he finally found an old timer. He said, yeah, there are others, but we don't do anything with it. Well, why not? I don't know. <laughs> well, we don't. So he found out the reason why. Um, those were the later seasons. And Lauren Green... Michael Landon and Dan Blocker uh, were paid something in excess of a million dollars each for the residual rights for those later shows. So NBC wouldn't have to keep paying money. Um, and I think for the 65, 66 season, uh, they were not obligated to pay them at all unless they were shown. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details right now. I'd have to look it up. But, Basically, but, those episodes went away so somebody didn't get paid, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. I see. I would have thought it would have been because Pernell Roberts, or because it was after Pernell's time at, on the show. But it sounds like it was financially motivated. Correct. No, it, it was independent of, of Pernell's departure because there were plenty of episodes that were available in syndication post Pernell, but there were very many that were not. Yeah. Um, including none of, of the last three seasons. Ironically, the ones that were the last ones in CBS Home Entertainment released. So um, Chuck Larson went went back to the to the lab and said, let's create a new title, Bonanza the Lost Episodes. And it was the late 80s, so he stole a page from Jackie Gleason's playbook, who had released episodes of his variety series, uh, excising just the Honeymooners skits, and yep. he called that the Honeymooners the Lost Episodes. I think it was lost. It was just never released. And the same thing with Bonanza. So so those last few seasons were known as Bonanza, the lost episodes, and saw the light of day in syndication for the first time because of Chuck Larson. And, wow. and um, NBC had to fork up some money for the first time in many years, but not as much money as they would have earlier because by now these shows were a cable exclusive, which has a lower tier, a lower payment rate, and syndication on on non cable entities, so so that was the story of those last few seasons, and and so now these same episodes that were state of the art in 1988, 1989 are looking lousy in 2022, 2023. Yeah. But that's all we have, and so Tim Matheson is is watching his episodes. And I looked sort of funky, and I, I apologized, but that's all we had to work with. Well, fortunately, others shared my opinion, and not too, la not too long after that, the word came down, you know, we're not going to be able to release these in their present condition. They just, we, we can't, you know, we can't, was it, was it that Sarah Palin was, was quoted often as saying, you can't get a pig's feet from a sow's ear or something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Sounds good. Yeah. So so we had to wait. And and again, I I got help 
from from a, a wonderful source. Um, Richard Yanovich was for many years the head of international distribution for CBS Paramount Home Entertainment. And, and he was a big Bonanza fan, and I was able to get him a copy of the Ponderosa map, so and he was my buddy after that. And and he had retired, fortunately, for us, fortunately for him, I guess. But I explained the dilemma. I said, we, we have these final seasons, and we just don't have the money to restore and remaster them properly. But I remember you came to the rescue for season three and later shows by, by getting money from uh, the international division to, to entice international buyers. Might such a thing be possible again? Can we go to the well twice and get the same results? And he said, unfortunately, I can't do anything because I'm retired, but I will talk to my successor and put in a word. And, and that's what he did. And that's what. So the international division, once again, our, our friends around the world came to Bonanza's rescue and made possible the restorations of those final seasons 12, 13, and 14, and kicking and dragging reluctantly, but, but definitively season two. And, and I remember there was some discussion about what post-production facility to have the restoration work done at, and it seemed to me a no-brainer to do, again, where it had been before, but again, <clears throat> for reasons unknown to me, a different facility was picked, and I had a little bit of hiccups because they weren't familiar with it, but finally, it, it all came out well in the end, but one of the most gratifying aspects of that, which I, I wanted to share, was I, I had conversations with the project manager at the facility that was doing the restorations for these later seasons. And I remember in particular, season two, words to the effect that they were given the bare minimum budget from CBS Paramount to do the restoration. And, and, and I guess as viewers know, or they should know, it comes down to time. You'll, you'll take your 35 millimeter reel of film and you'll put it in a projector and it will go through a scanner. And then your technician has the opportunity to work with dials and software to clean up dust and dirt and scratches and imperfections. And although you have a computer algorithm that can do that efficiently, there's no substitute for a pair of eyes that goes back and, and takes out a scratch that's visible in a corner of a screen. And, and I, I was getting screeners, and on rare occasions, rare occasions, I would say, hey, you know, you missed a scratch there, and, and is there something you could do about it? And, and I remember the project manager telling me that although they were given marching orders to spend the minimal amount of time, they exceeded that time because the technicians were watching the show, were enthralled by what they were seeing, liked, by, liked what they saw, and wanted to spend more time to make the episodes look even better than the client had made for them to which I thought was pretty neat. And, and just to give you a tiny example, if folks want to take a look at an episode called The Dream Riders, which was a season two episode, uh, a fascinating story by two unknowns. I remember David Dorthorpe, the producer, telling me they were school teachers who made this pitch. And it was a funny kind of story about heist of money from a bank and the bad guys escape in a hot air balloon and it just seemed like something they couldn't possibly do but towards the end of the season they figured out a way to do it Robert Altman directed the episode 
and they use stock footage from Paramount's film library of a balloon ascending into the sky. And I remember watching the show, and you could tell that it was stock footage because it didn't match the color and the composition of the scenes preceding and following it. But with the new restorations, they were able to digitally enhance and improve it so it was seamless. It didn't look like it was stock footage. So that was... So is the season two that's in this complete series box set the original discs, or is it the new transfers that were created recently? Absolutely, it's the new transfers. Okay. And in addition, you can buy the newly restored and remastered season two individually. For some reason, there's been some grumblings people have posted on Amazon, and I think, and elsewhere. Well, it's not fair. I want to get season... 12, 13, 14 to complete my set, but I don't want to have to buy all the other seasons that I've already purchased previously. Why can't I get them individually? And the answer is, you can. And I don't know why people think they cannot, but they certainly can. And with season two, you could get dirt cheap through know, season two releases from 2010, 2011, or you can get the 2023 individual release which has all these episodes beautifully restored and remastered, looking like they were filmed yesterday, and additional bonus features, which I was able to get in because I thought, can we please, please have something extra to entice people who want to get an individual season two set, um, but they already have their individual two set, season two set, and they don't care so much about the, the update. So I have um, new vintage interviews excerpts with Ricardo Montalban and with Martin Landa, two very big guns talking about the Bonanza episodes. And dear Stella Stevens, oh, can't they say enough wonderful things about Stella Stevens, but when Stella Stevens recorded her audio commentary in 2011, she decided that because her character was a deaf mute, she would not speak during the audio commentary. <laughs> and it was maddening. And the only reason we were able to salvage at least something from that day is I sat down with her at the end of the audio session and just had a conversation like you and I are having. And the recording engineer recorded that. So I was able to plug that in throughout the episode. But it was woefully inaccurate. I'm sorry, woefully insufficient and and i was so happy now to have an opportunity to tweak that to redo that so what i did was i went into the recording booth and filled in all of the blanks and paused and let her talk about some wonderful things but she did you kind of even cue her as if you guys are in the same i've listened to that commentary you cue oh, her you? as yeah. if you're like tell me about so and so how did that come to be and then you like you set it up and it's like you guys are talking back and forth but it's through the magic of editing and there was a difference of about 12 years <laughs> yeah but it's, it came together really wonderfully which is what i wanted to tell you is that that is such a like i wouldn't have known i mean you just told us but i wouldn't have known that it doesn't sound like it's a it's pieced together across the ages uh, yeah. And also, you give a really good commentary. I told you that when we were emailing back and forth. I was like, you give a great commentary. That's not something that's necessarily easy to do. I think you no. either have it or you don't. Uh, you, uh, you, you carry those really well. So 
<laughs> well done. People can hear that. That's one of the, I want to talk about the extras because we there are so many extras. I've used the term archive several times during this conversation, but these, these discs really are an archive for Bonanza, and it's beyond the episodes. The photo galleries alone are some of the most extensive photo galleries I've seen for any project, anything. Uh, you've got commentaries. You've got you know, commercials. I mean, you can tell people what all's on there, but there, it is a repository. One of the things I want to know is, is there stuff that you wanted to put on there that you couldn't clear or that you just didn't have space for? Space was not a problem. Um, thankfully, but not being able to find things was a problem. Starting at the beginning, Bonanza's pilot episode was filmed in April of 1959 and under very difficult conditions. David Dortort <clears throat> was actively producing the Restless Gun for Universal MCA Review during the day. At night, he would go to an office at NBC and write the script longhand. And he handed over to Joan Sherman Markowitz, who was the production manager's secretary, and she would type it up and shout out to dear Joan, who is the daughter of Eddie Sherman, who is the manager of Abbott and Costello, so quite, quite an interesting person, wonderful, wonderful person. And David Dortort had named the Cartwrights Ranch the Panamint, and she didn't think that was good, and, and I guess he had some doubts. So on uh, one late night session, he was describing the majestic, tall, Ponderosa pine trees that dotted the landscape in and around Lake Tahoe. So she stopped him and she said, instead of the Panamint, why don't you call it the Ponderosa Ranch? And it was a eureka moment and that's what it became. And, and she showed me with great pride a, a photograph inscribed to her from Dan Blocker to Joan Sherman Markowitz. I love you, but you don't even know who I am. And I hereby dub the Madam of the Ponderosa. So, yeah, she gets a lot of credit for that. So, <clears throat> so the pilot was filmed quickly. It was assembled quickly. And a fellow by the name of Jay Livingston was assigned the task to write the theme song, along with his partner, Ray Evans, who wrote the lyrics. And Jay Livingston's brother was Alan Livingston, who was the vice president in charge of program at NBC at the time had come from Capitol Records, later went back to Capitol Records and was instrumental in signing the Beatles to Capitol Records. And during his fire stint at Capitol Records, he created Bozo the Clown. So I like to think that he is responsible for three Bs, three big Bs in popular culture, Bonanza the Beatles and Bozo the Clown. And he went to New York with a round of advertising agencies with a 16 millimeter print of the pilot under his arm until he was able to make a sale. Eventually it was the parent company of NBC, RCA, that sponsored the show. But I go into this in somewhat detail because of the timing. He did this in, in June, July of 1959. And the series started filming in earnest beginning of July 1959, after an interim from between April and July. And when the show aired, the pilot episode, it had a wonderful score, as did virtually all subsequent episodes by the 
terrific, terrific composer, David Rose. But David Rose wasn't hired until something like August 1st. So prior to that, Alan Livingston had this pilot that he took to various agencies with different music. I would imagine music library tracks and alternate scenes, scenes that were cut differently. And I tried and tried in vain to find that alternate version of the pilot, which has to exist or existed at one time because of what I've just told you, but I wasn't able to find it. And, and that was just um, as far as special features, bonus features. And um, I was also disappointed I wasn't able to find the original 35 millimeter elements to the two hour episode forever written and directed by Michael Landon to launch the 14th season. And I was told they, they just can't find it. So is it lost forever or is it misplaced? Any of the above, any of the above is possible. But if you look long enough, you, you find things. I, I mentioned Angelo Dante before. He was able to dig out from the archives of Paramount miraculously audio only of all four Cartwrights announcing the new availability of episodes of Bonanza on a television station in Australia in 1964. How cool is that? That's pretty yeah. cool. So I, I worked with, um, again, another very good editor, David Leibowitz, to construct visuals to accompany the audio. So, so that was a wonderful find. But to answer the question about what I wasn't able to use that I wanted to use, um, we'll talk about Pernell Roberts. Pernell Roberts had a long and fruitful association with the Bonanza Company because he created an integral, uh, ingratiating character that completed the cast of characters magnificently. And some say it wasn't quite the same after he left, and indeed it was not, but the show shifted gears, in, in my opinion. It wasn't a, a dip in quality, it was just it's different, which viewers who watch the show over time, I think they have to read about. But he was reticent to do anything outside of the realm of the show itself. He did, like the others, make the rounds and, and appeared on talk shows and game shows, but that stuff, for the most part, to the best of my knowledge, no longer exists. But there are exceptions. He was on the Mike Douglas show in 1965. He was the guest host for a week, which was Mike Douglas's format at the time. And he was on the Ed Sullivan show. He sang a medley of songs from a record album he had recorded and produced a couple of years prior. So I worked very, very hard to get permission to use footage from those two sources. And the hang-up, for the most part, was the Pernell Roberts estate. Um, Pernell Roberts wanted a lot of money to use his likeness. And there are those who say he just didn't want to have anything to do with Bonanza. And that's just not true. He was happy to let people use his likeness, but he damned if he was going to give it away or, or even give it away for Screen Actors Guild minimum. And in all the years I, I had the opportunity to know him and associate with him and his, his lawyer, 
since 1959 when he got him divorced from his first wife. He's always been very conscious of, of his work. And I remember the only exception I can think of, after Michael Landon passed away, he agreed to let footage from Bonanza be used without cost in a tribute to Michael Landon that his son, Michael Landon Jr., directed. But that was the only exception. So I finally, finally, finally came to terms with his widow, who agreed to let the footage from Ed Sullivan be used at an amount less than what she asked for first, more than what I had hoped to pay, but, you know, that's how you negotiate. So I was very happy to be able to use that, to include that. Um, and I think people, if they haven't already, would be very pleased to see that, something that it's never been seen since yeah. it aired in 1965. And then the Mike Douglas show. I was able to locate, or I thought I was able to locate, one segment from his appearance on the Mike Douglas show in June of 1965. Talks about appearing in Camelot, and that was one of the principal reasons why he left Bonanza. He wanted to be able to do other things like, like act on stage and do musicals because when you're doing a show like Bonanza, again, 34 shows a year, 36, you don't have time to do other things because you only have a couple of months off. And just not enough time to do other projects in detail. And he wanted to do a variety of different things. Ironically, if the Bonanza was produced today, he would have stayed with the show because he would have had the freedom to do other things. Probably would have given the opportunity to direct. Uh, and, and so anyway, I arranged to have the original two-inch quad black-and-white videotape shipped <clears throat> from a storage facility, I believe on, on or near Paramount Studios, to a post-production facility nearby Glendale, I think. And, and they put the two-inch reel on the rack and went through the process of transferring, sent me the slate, the title, the opening, and closing, and it was the wrong show. It was not the show that Purnell was in talking to Mike Douglas. It was Patrice Munsell, a wonderful singer who had been the guest host the week before. I, yeah. I very much regret not having that footage of Purnell talking at length about <clears throat> his time on the show and, and his complaints and grievances and also some very complimentary things like Mike Douglas says almost a throwaway line, that big guy, how come he never gets the girl? How come he never gets any good love stories? And, and Purnell said, he gets the girl sometimes, and he had some beautiful love stories, but none of us really got the girl in so-called Cartwright first. But so so it's unfortunate that we couldn't see them. I I love the it's I think it's called the final interview with Michael Landon, and it's a it's an inter, it's an audio interview, and then a few was a few a few week a few months later he had passed. Well, Bill Brioche is um a, a wonderful professional writer based in Canada and was in Los Angeles for the annual Upfront, if I'm not mistaken, where networks tout their new shows and, and people connected with the production of the shows in the hope of attracting sponsors. And uh, Michael Landon had just completed the pilot episode of a show called Us, 
uh, a reworking of a script he had written a good number of years before that um, about a man who was unjustly imprisoned and then released from prison and travels the country with his father and his son. And Barney Martin played uh, his father, and uh, he later is best known, I guess, to modern audiences as Jerry Seinfeld's father. Seinfeld, but he was Michael Landon's father for for, for a show. And um, he he, uh, he he did he did this wonderful show, and it was premature to be promoting it. But Bill was friendly um, with uh, a photographer who knew Michael very well, uh, Gene Trindle, who is a name that should be familiar to every and any enthusiast in, in vintage television because Gene Trindle photographed every, every cast member of every important show and not so important shows that were featured in TV Guide. From the late fifties through to the nineties, a very long, prolific career, and a very very nice guy. So, so Gene Trindle introduced Bill to Harry Flynn, who was Michael Landon's publicist at the time, and arranged an impromptu interview. Bill was literally on his way to the airport to go back to Toronto, and and again had really no business to talk to Michael at that time because. It was very far from the traditional period where, where Michael would talk about his show, but as sort of a favor, he did that. And, and so they, they talked about the show and, and talked a lot about Bonanza. And my friend Stan Taffel, who is also a film enthusiast and historian, I recruited him to do an audio commentary on Younger Brother's Younger Brother, an episode that Michael Landon wrote and directed that featured Chuck McCann. Great Chuck McCann, who was also a name that should be well known to television enthusiasts. Um, Stan told me about his friend Bill, and so I got in touch with Bill and told him what I was doing. And Bill couldn't have been more cooperative. He was very happy to let me use this audio, which he had he had never used before, because, as you say accurately, um, this was an interview that was conducted. March of 1991, and a few days after that, Michael left to go on a skiing vacation with his family in Utah, which he cut short because he had terrible stomach pains, and his wife Cindy insisted that he see a doctor. Stomach pains that I guess he had ignored for days and weeks prior, but it just became so bad that he could no longer ignore them. And when he returned to Los Angeles, he discovered a terrible diagnosis that he had been suffering from pancreatic cancer that lost his demise four months later. He died in July. So, so yeah, that was, that was a nice sort of coup to be able to get Michael's last interview. Yeah. There's a lot there, uh, especially on, on that bonus disc and elsewhere in the set that really adds so much to the the history of of bonanza outside of the episodes just celebrations of uh of the cast and the crew and the people that made it possible uh including those introductions from the creator from david dortort himself uh as we wind down i do want to 
have we asked for questions. We submitted for some questions. So I want to field a few of these to you. Kirk Spencer wanted to know if you know of any other plans for more series collections, especially Westerns, that might be underway right now. From CBS Paramount, no, I do not know. That's not to say something couldn't happen in the future, but again, it's a matter of economics. When you have your heavy hitters, Bonanza and Gunsmoke, I, I did have some discussions with um, with someone about working on Cimarron's script. And I haven't been asked to follow up on that. So I don't know. Um, as I mentioned, there's been sort of a change in regime recently and, and the mm-hmm. scuttlebutt as newer guys are less interested in vintage titles, library titles. Yeah. So you'll see. Um, the fellow that was my champion is now with Shout Factory. So I'm encouraged by that and hope to touch base with him sooner than later and see what opportunities there are at Shout Factory, which has always been a good mm-hmm. place for, for vintage programs. Shout traditionally hasn't wanted to spend a lot of money. Like, for example, they, they wouldn't have spent the money that CBS Paramount did to have the episodes restored and remastered. They would have taken existing masters that hopefully were restored and repackaged and put them out. And, and that's, in fact, what, what they did with, with the High Chaparral. Um, you talk about Laramie, those episodes, sadly, were not remastered and restored in time to be put out on DVD. They worked from 16 millimeter sources. Subsequent to that, they were restored and remastered thanks to the money supplied by the Stars Encore Westerns channel. And so you catch episodes of Laramie, for example, on that channel, they look much better than anything you find on the DVD. So on my list of things to do is to make a pitch to do a new collection of shows like Laramie and, and others that have been restored and remastered, but just were never released on DVD, and hopefully try to get some additional supplemental material. Working with Robert Fuller being at the top of my, my list, because he's still around. Do some intros, things like that. You mentioned uh, Shell Factory. You know, they they acquired, they bought Timeless Media Group, and Timeless right. Media Group put out many Westerns. So people can get over their aversion to not being Blu-ray. Uh, Timeless Media Group put out a ton of stuff. I'm, I'm looking at my, I have a huge shelf. It's out of frame here. But, I mean, The Deputy Tall Man, uh, Tombstone Territory, Overland Trail, Whiplash, Riverboat, Mackenzie's Raiders. I mean, all of these come from... Pretty good sources, and they look pretty good. And uh, we should. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I just saw LAR, so I thought you were talking about Laramie. I didn't realize it was Laredo. <laughs> I apologize. That's okay. Hey, that's okay. That's a, two two great shows. Um, what I was gonna say is that I I went down a. I, I was watching the Texan, you know, Rory Calhoun and the Texan, sure. and I was trying to see if anybody could talk about a restoration because those are sixteen millimeter prints that they feel very removed from their original source they they were probably struck for television i don't know uh you know struck for syndication, syndication. or whatever absolutely true. uh 40 probably 40 years ago something At like least. that and yeah. i was trying to see if anybody knew anything about a restoration and i was told 
oh no, that ship has sailed. That's never going to happen. That's as good as that show is ever going to look. So look, I don't know if that applies to a lot of these things, but sometimes we should just be thankful for what we have. Well, in the case of a show like The Texan, it's a matter of getting to the source material. And I think The Texan was produced at Universal. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but if that's the case, Universal, to the best of my knowledge, retains all its original 35 millimeter source material. So it's a question of economics. And, and there are miraculous things that can be done with 16 millimeter. All you have to do is look at what Peter Jackson did with Let It Be, which is nothing short of phenomenal. And the same thing could be done to vintage television programs if you had an eccentric billionaire who wanted to flip the bill for those kinds of things. Sure. Was there any movement on the Restless Gun, speaking of another show that kind of adjacent to what we're talking about? Well, well, that falls into the same category, and, and it's, a, it's sort of a subject near and dear to my heart because uh, David Dortort produced it, uh, the um, personal invitation of, of uh, John Payne, and it was a vehicle for him, created for him, or developed for him by, uh, by review. It was originally uh, a radio series called The Six Shooter, which starred James Stewart as uh, the loner who wandered the West and dispensed justice. But those shows were restored uh, down and dirty by timeless entertainment under the auspices of Norm Anderson, who did us a great, great service by making these vintage shows available that otherwise would never be available. Yeah. But it's unfortunate that although the technology is there, um, the money is not to do proper restorations from the original materials that, to the best of my knowledge, still exist. Um, okay. A few years ago, Keith, I was recruited to oversee what I thought would be a wonderful, successful project, Time Life's The Best of the TV West. And, and I was given marching orders to pick out the best episodes of a number of shows which ostensibly represented television's greatest westerns. And for the most part, that was accurate. There were one or two shows that were omitted for, for legal reasons, not because they were not good enough. But um, I worked with some wonderful people at Time and Life, and I picked out episodes, and I don't know if the shows are important to mention, but off the top of my head, of course, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Have Done With Travel, uh, the Rebel, Wagon Train, Laramie, The High Chaparral, Tales of Wells Fargo. No, no, that didn't make the cut. Um, Death Valley Days. And put together uh, an infomercial, because that's Time Life's raison d'etre. And it didn't succeed. Not enough people called the 800 number at 2 in the morning to say they were interested, which mystifies me. Um, and, and I certainly wish that project had gotten off the ground because it would have been wonderful to have episodes that were newly restored and remastered. Um, have Gun Will Travel was sort of a mixed bag. Some of the episodes were restored from 35 millimeter, some were not. And they were all released by CBS Home Entertainment. Mm -hmm. and, and I wanted to, on this infomercial I released, include specimens in 35 millimeter. And so I was able to get um, very quick, again, to repeat that cliche, down and dirty, what they call one light restorations from Have Done Will Travel and from Wagon Trip. 
and and they looked great. Not fantastic, but they would have had the project succeeded. So so the material is there, and it's it's just a shame that that it was not it's not successful. Hopefully in coming years, you know, as maybe as the costs for these continue to come down, we'll see more, uh, more rescuing. And there's more people doing it too. There's a lot of independent distributors now that are stepping in and that want to save shows. I want to reference classic flicks because classic flicks is doing great stuff. You you started with Bob Fermanek, the Abbott and Costello restorations that he's doing for the Abbott Costello show seasons one and two. Chef's kiss. Uh, Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, absolutely wonderful. I see Laurel and Hardy over your shoulder there. The Laurel and Hardy restorations that we're getting right now. There's a box set that just came out this year with the 1917 shorts, uh, newly restored, and you can Lots see entertainment from from France. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can see the textures on clothing. You can see like there. There's a, a scene where a guy's eating a sandwich, and you can see like the the texture of the meat in his sandwich. I mean, we are living in a really great time where technology affords the opportunity to save a lot of this stuff. I just hope that the elements survive long enough for that to happen. Yeah. I think that um, Jack Thiexen answered the question very well that you put, why restore these things? And, and he said, well, so it doesn't become irrelevant. This material has to be restored. So it's accessible and it's relevant and, and can be seen. And you have to keep up with technology and yeah. just, talking about the failure of the Time Life project. And, and again, I don't know why it failed, because it was a, a terrific idea, and it was beautifully executed, and then the 30-minute infomercial I thought was very well done. And I say that modestly because I helped to suggest a lot of the clips that yeah. were used. So a question that you and I had discussed previously, why Westerns? you had asked me to think about why your viewers who are devotees of classic television, classic films on physical media, but not necessarily Western fans, why should they invest in a Western generally and Bonanza in particular? And and the question is sort of head scratching. Why aren't Westerns more popular? And I think the answer is uh, Generation X, Y, Z, whatever, whatever people are called. I'm X and I love them. So oh. I think it's a Y, Z problem. <laughs> I accept no responsibility. <laughs> so, so people who go to the movie theaters now, they see wonderful entertainment produced by, by Disney and prior by Fox, of, of the Star Wars films, of adaptations of the Marvel comic books. So those shows, those are rich in, in science fiction and fantasy and special effects. And so, so that's what the audience knows. They don't know Westerns because they haven't seen Westerns. I guess with the exception of, of Yellowstone, which is a modern Western, which is very successful because yeah. of Taylor Hackford and Kevin Costner collaborating, creating a brilliant story that has been called by many a sort of a modern bonanza, a family dynamic and dynasty. So I think if people had the opportunity to watch the format, to watch the genre, they would appreciate that Westerns are entertaining. What is a Western? A Western 
ostensibly is set in the American West. It's the unique, distinct, original American art form. Other than the United States of America, you don't you don't have the the cowboy and the horses and the gunfights and the surviving despite great odds of overcoming adversity in terms of the elements and migrating from the east to the untamed west. And you have stories that have that rich, colorful background, the majestic location scenes in the case of Bonanza and Gunsmoke filmed on location in Nevada and Northern California and Utah. And to capture that on film is, is breathtaking. And so you have stories, especially in the case of Bonanza, the gamut of, of genres, traditional action adventure shoot 'em ups, of course, uh, also romance, uh, pathos, drama, comedy, broad comedy, thought provoking, controversial stories, and even fantasy. There's a wonderful Bonanza episode called The Twilight Town by Cy Shermack, who was producer of The Night Stalker, a great, great series. And it's got elements of, of, of gothic fantasy lifted right out of the playbook of The Twilight Zone. And that episode, Twilight Town, could have been an episode of Twilight Zone. It's it's very well done. Um, so if, if people are hesitant, I would say give Westerns a chance if you like good stories. You, know, you, may, you have people who like aforementioned science fiction, they like horror, fantasy. Um, you're not going to find too many horror stories in Bonanza or Gunsmoke, but you're certainly going to find just about every other type of story. So I wouldn't be put off by the fact that you're not familiar with, with the background. I think the bottom line is film, television production is a great collaborative medium. And at the top of the list of collaborators, essential collaborators, I think, is, is, is the writer. Without the writer, the skeleton, the bare bones, you're not going to have anything of substance. You can have the most charismatic actor or actress in the world, but if they don't have good dialogue, I don't think you're going to be interested in, in watching. So you have a writer who works with these talented uh, performers and directors, cinematographers, and all the crew, and musicians, composers, and you're going to have a, a great great product. And, and that's why uh, the Writers Guild was so concerned recently about the creeping influence of artificial intelligence and, mm -hmm. and, and software's ability to create realistic dialogue. And that's pretty scary. So, so if you have a, a good writer, he or she can write something that's entertaining regardless of genre. And so I would say give, give Westerns generally a chance, please. And specifically shows like, like Bonanza. Is there one of the questions is from Landon Green forever. Is there any possibility of a documentary about the making of of the remastering of Bonanza? Uh, just any anything that would give us like a, a more behind the scenes look at how this was all achieved, or just a long form documentary about Bonanza as a show, just looking at the broad fourteen year journey. I think you and I have sort of made a good start in talking about behind the scenes. And Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Yeah. As far as producing a documentary, I think anything is possible and it's a matter of getting a talented filmmaker interested in, in making such a documentary. I, I know I kicked around the possibility of including 
in the bonus disc for Bonanza footage from Bonanza conventions. Uh, this is a comment from Jim. No questions. Just want to express my gratitude as a Bonanza fan and a TV on DVD fan for such a comprehensive set. The bonus features are so good and the quality of the set overall is top notch. I want to second that. I want to say thank you. You have worked on something that helps bring you have met fans more than halfway. Uh, you have given us so much here as far as quality. The episodes look great. The stories behind the episodes, the special features, the extras, the archival materials. Uh, there is no reason for anybody not to seek this out now. The the price is fair. Uh, thank you so much for what you've done to bring this to fans. You're welcome. And I second everything you said and more. And I would just say to viewers, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And, and I don't have to talk you into supporting physical media, you, you already do that. I would ask you to continue to keep supporting physical media and, and keep supporting Heath and his, his wonderful contributions to, to the cause. And I'll do the best I can to, to try to get more good quality product out there and not just Bonanza, not just Gunsmoke, not just the High Chaparral, all of which are, are worthy of your time and attention. And uh, thank you for this opportunity. This has been a lot of fun and educational and elucidating for viewers, I hope. Coming off of that, you guys, I mean, I really don't even know what else there is to say. We covered it all. We covered the importance of physical media. We covered uh, what goes into this kind of a box set. We covered why no Blu-ray, why no 4K. We covered the economics of the physical media business right now. We also covered why Bonanza is so special. We covered why Gunsmoke is so special, why these shows have continued to resonate with audiences decades after they first went off the air. This is probably one of the uh the most prestigious guests and conversations we've ever had here at serial at midnight so please do support well support serial at midnight by liking subscribing giving thumbs ups leaving comments leaving reviews anything that you can do to support this uh the serial at midnight uh, also support mr clyde by picking up these releases you know money talks this video is going up around the holiday season and there's never been a better time to put Bonanza or Gunsmoke under the tree for somebody that you love or for for yourself. Let me tell you guys, the love from other releases, other studios, other people, it isn't always there. But it is here, so let's support it. Guys, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking care. Until next time, I will catch you later.